And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon the the case that may be. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when we send out transmissions into the solar system and across the galaxy, and someone answers. The only problem is... Um, we can't tell you exactly who it was yet. We are, as they say, working on it. We have top men. Remember that great line from uh, uh, Indiana Jones? Uh, we have top men working on it. Um, and in fact, they are top men, and you're going to meet some of them tonight. Before we get to this extraordinary experiment that we are in the, in the middle of, actually, no, that's a misstatement. We are at the very beginning of something extraordinary. And after I go through a couple of interesting news items, I'm going to kind of recap for new listeners, because we have new listeners all the time. As my friend in radio used to say, jumping in and out of the wheelbarrow like frogs. <clears throat> Isn't that an awful simile? Anyway, um, I will get to kind of how we got to where we are tonight momentarily, but let me give you some really interesting news. Today is a red-letter day not only for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, but for all the rest of us. Today is the 14th tetrahedral day, literally to the day, since the Webb Space Telescope was launched on Christmas morning, talk about a present, at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Time, 5.20 a.m. my time. You can imagine where I was then. <clears throat> obviously watching. Um, from French Guiana, middle of a rainforest, it's been in orbit, en route to the L2 position. And if you don't know about L2, you will momentarily. For the last 14 days. Well, 14 days they've been in transit. They're about 600,000 miles away from Earth roughly twice the distance to the moon, actually somewhat more. And they're aiming for a region of space, not a point, but a region, called the L2 region. Um, a French celestial mechanics astronomer several centuries ago named uh, um, uh, Lagrange figured out, calculated, that there are five stable points, give or take, in a given two-body system with one object orbiting around another. And they're labeled L1, L2, L3, you know, Lagrange 1, Lagrange 2, that kind of thing. Uh, two of them are very stable, L4 and L5. Those are the ones that are ahead of and behind at 60 degrees an object orbiting, like the Earth. You know, they're 60 degrees ahead of the Earth's orbit and 60 degrees behind the Earth's orbit in the... Earth's orbit, and they're not points. They're actually regions where something will kind of orbit around because of other disturbing factors, because the solar system is more than two objects, right? Right. The other three points, uh, L1, L2, and L3, are unstable, meaning that you can put an object there and it will orbit for a time, but it will kind of wander away eventually. So what you do if you want to put a spacecraft at these 
positions, these Lagrange points, is you give them fuel and you give them thrusters and every once in a while they make a little correction and they kind of nudge themselves so their orbit doesn't take very much at all, just a tiny little nudge to keep them kind of orbiting those, quote, points in space. Again, in the plane of the Earth's orbit around the Sun, because we're talking about the Earth-Sun system. The L2 point is about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the Sun, a million miles out. Um, it's not in the shadow of the Earth because, uh, um, you know, the you have to be really exactly aligned to be in the shadow at a million miles. I mean, can you imagine how small the Earth would appear at a million miles? Uh, that's about four times the distance of the Earth moon. The Earth moon, uh, or the Earth from the moon, uh, subtends about two degrees. So the Earth from the L2 point, if you look back toward the sun, would be one degree. So if the Earth passes one degree above the disk of the sun, which again is one uh, quarter the size that it would appear, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's about the same size, about half a degree as it would appear from the moon because a million miles on this scale means nothing. Um, you can see that even slight orbital inclinational differences because the the orbit around the L2 point is not in plane. It will be out of plane sometimes. So the idea of going into an eclipse is rare and usually... Uh, uh, only occurs, you know, around the equinox, uh, roughly twice a year. Anyway, um, all of this celestial mechanics means that they're almost like 70-some percent of the way to the L2 point. And over the last 14 days, as the spacecraft has been cruising uphill, slowing down, it's moving tonight at about four-tenths of a kilometer per second, which is about what 1.6, little less than two tenths uh, of a of a mile per second, which is fast on Earth and very slow in space. And by the end of the month, by like the twenty third, twenty fourth, somewhere around there, it will arrive on station. It will arrive at the L two region, and they will fire thrusters given the onboard fuel situation, which is really good. I mean, they got such perfection out of the Ariane launch vehicle that they said this afternoon, the project director said this afternoon in a NASA briefing, which is what I was watching most of the afternoon, and I'll tell you why in a moment, he said that they've got enough fuel on board, barring any unexpected radical emergencies, to literally last them, wait for it, 20 years. In other words, if nothing goes to the telescope, visits it, like uh, Hubble was visited by the shuttle in uh, low Earth orbit, that telescope can now function, barring electronic failures, for 20 years, given the onboard fuel that's required to give these little nudges every once in a while to keep it very happily and peacefully orbiting the L2 point. So, um, why is today important? Well, today, the 14th tetrahedral day after launch, and you know where that number comes from. You know, there are seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron. If you have two of them, that's 14. 
Um, it's also symbolically encoded in the dismemberment of Osiris, the 14 pieces that Isis had to put back together to reconstitute him after he'd been torn asunder in Egyptian mythology. I mean, all these hyperdimensional numbers are encoded in the myths. We'll, we'll get back to the, the transmissions that we did with some of these numbers shortly. So anyway, on this 14th tetrahedral day, the Webb Space Telescope people, the NASA people at NASA Goddard, my old alma mater, uh, finished what is called the major elements of the commissioning of the Webb Space Telescope. What do I mean by that? Well, as you know, they had to launch this thing all folded up like a folded up praying mantis inside the nose cone, i.e. fairing, of an Ariane 2 heavy launch vehicle rocket. And it's a big, it's a huge telescope when it's all unfolded and deployed and unfurled and everything is, is out there the way it should be for it to operate as a functional observatory in space. So the last two weeks, the last 14 days, have been spent in deploying various aspects of the telescope, which had to all be perfectly 100% deployed for this thing to function. And the three major elements that had to, without fail, work, otherwise the whole mission would be a $10 billion catastrophe. That's how much this telescope, probably the most expensive spacecraft apart from the Apollo program itself, which in 1969 dollars was like 20 billion and would be probably more like 30 now in inflated dollars. Uh, the single most expensive machine that humans have ever launched into space uh, as a single spacecraft is, is the Webb telescope. Why is it so expensive? Because they had to spend decades, literally almost 20 five years, a quarter of a century, designing it, learning how to make various parts of it, machining them, testing them, throwing away the failures, going back to the drawing board, doing all kinds of incredible testing in vacuum chambers and cryogenic rooms. And I mean, the degree of testing of this mechanical Rube Goldberg type device for you the, who do not know who Rube Goldberg was, Google is your friend. Um, be prepared to be shocked when you read out about Rube Goldberg. Anyway, the most complicated part of unfurling this thing after it was launched like a butterfly out of a chrysalis, the, uh, the nose cone, the, the uh, fairing, was the five layers of Kevlar plastic uh, luminized film that extended out to about the area of a tennis court, all on booms with cables and wires and pulleys and motors and, I mean, an incredible complex nightmare, a spider web of mechanical things, all of which could go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, <laughs> that kind of thing. And in 14 days, they not only successfully, a few days ago, finished deployment of this tennis court-sized multiple layer, five-layer uh, Kevlar shield, which will protect the telescope and the electronics 
and the sensors, the cameras, the spectrometers, the super, super cold by necessity instrumentation that'll do the actual observing uh, from the sun, even just a million miles further away from the sun than the earth is. And it's pretty hot here, you know. That's why you have nice summer days. And even here in the land of enchantment, nice winter days. It was up to almost 60 degrees uh, this afternoon here in the uh, land of enchantment in winter in January, um, which was really nice. Anyway, all this incredible mechanical complexity worked perfectly the first time, and that huge tennis court-sized multiple-layer sun shield was successfully deployed several days ago. The next thing that had to be deployed was the two elements on the side, they called them wings, of the 18-segment hexagonal mirrors. Two, I'm sorry, three on each wing, that makes six, to be added to the ones in the center that were, you know, um, narrow enough to fit inside the, you know, rocket's nose cone, i.e. fairing. Those all had to be deployed and then locked into place. The um, the boom, the three carbon fiber booms had to be unfurled and locked into place again by motors so that the secondary mirror, which sticks out in front of this tripod uh, carbon fiber tube arrangement, like three soda straws meeting at a point above the mirror, that had to be deployed, all of this to make the beginnings of a functioning telescope a million miles behind the Earth in space, behind a sun shield, where the differential between the temperatures on the sun side of the telescope, uh, below the shield, you know, the electronics that need to be kept warm, and the telescope itself, which is the mirrors and the secondary mirrors and the instruments and all that, which are on the night side of the sun shield, that have to be kept really, 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 really cold, like only 50 degrees above absolute zero. They're like minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit when they get down to temperatures. The differential between the sun side temps and the night side temps for this telescope, as it's now deployed and moving again through space, at uh, about 1.6, I'm sorry, 0.16 miles per second toward the L2 point is over 600 degrees between the day side and the night side. I mean, this machine is the most superlative, most complex, most expensive, most incredibly efficient when it gets going, when it starts actually functioning as an observatory. machine humankind has ever created, bar none, because it's going to literally see back to the beginning of time, like a hundred million years or give or take right after the Big Bang and all the really cool stuff that happened very quickly in the early, 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 early universe by the current time frame. And the list of what it's going to reveal and confirm and boggle our mind with in terms of things that we have no idea are out there to be noticed and discovered and observed, um, just like with Hubble. Um, It's all about to function. Now, what's going to happen next? Well, for the next several months, 
now that they've got the primary mirror all in one set of 18 hexagonal mirrors. Each of those mirrors is a telescope by itself. And what they literally have, will do is they will use more motors um, on the backside of those mirrors to literally tilt and pan them so instead of being aimed all over the sky, which they pretty much are now because they had to survive the uh, rigors and the vibrations of launch and you know the mechanical uh, tolerances of latches and screws and and uh, you know hold down clamps and all that. Once they use those motors on the backside of those 18 mirrors to drive them in X and Y axes, and then to use a motor in the center to change the focus of each sub mirror. The ultimate aim is to have all 18 mirrors functioning together as one giant integrated 22 foot wide mirror. I mean, the 200 inch telescope on Mount Wilson is only, uh, I think, about uh, 16, I'm sorry, eight, about eight feet wide, I think. Um, I don't have a calculator down here, so 200 inches divided by 12. Tell me what that is, okay? Um, it's it's uh, it's it's not very big compared to the web, and it was never designed to function at 400 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It's going to take them literally tweaking and taking images in the infrared with the cameras, then tweaking some more. This is a very complicated, very elaborate, very time-consuming trial and error process. But the hard part, the, the what we would call the show-stopping part, the part where if that didn't work, you didn't have a telescope, that part is behind us. The sun shield is deployed and tensioned. The secondary mirror is out front. The main elements have been, you know, moved around from the side to the front locked into place now it's all about the fine tuning and that will go on for several months and then in about uh, the end of the six month period which is about what five and a half months from now given that we're two weeks after launch there will be a telescope and they're going to try to blow our socks off by taking some pictures of stunning things that humans have never had the capability of looking at or imaging or sampling in terms of spectroscopic data ever, ever before. And they are going to blow our minds because the universe is, as Ahura said once, it's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. Well, this is only one galaxy with about half a trillion stars. There are trillions of galaxies visible to this telescope, literally trillions and they'll be able to eavesdrop on planets and detect planets where, as they orbit other stars, there are chemicals in the atmosphere that, like in Earth's atmosphere, are indicative of some kind of photosynthetic life. All of this is coming to a head in the next five and a half months. So in about five and a half months, which is what, uh, June, July, somewhere around there, we should prepare to see some amazing imagery and some equally amazing explanations. So 
If you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, that will take you to the guest page tonight with our banner, which says very mysteriously, Amuamua, or someone answers. Because that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. What we've learned so far, we've learned a little bit more tonight, you're going to hear that, and what we need to do next to learn more. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under there, you'll see uh, where it says fast links to items under to listen to the show under the guest page banner. Click on my items. That takes you to item number one. This is an up-to-date web blog that's updated sometimes twice, three times a day, and sometimes only once a day. But kind of save that link and then just, uh, you know, refresh, and that will tell you where they are in the fine-tuning of the mirrors to make one super 22-foot-wide primary mirror of the biggest telescope by far ever, ever, ever put into space, and one of the biggest telescopes that humankind has ever created, either on the ground or in space. Okay, item number two. This is the link directly to where is the telescope. This shows you graphically how far it is away from the L2 point, and when they get there, they'll change the graphics, and you'll be able to follow its orbit around and updates, you know, temperatures, things like that. Number three. Uh, This is very interesting. Item number three. In the last few weeks, NASA has done some very, very curious things, kind of like Webb is the beginning of an orchestral overture, which is designed to prepare us for a whole new view of the universe and our place in it, and maybe some other people's place in it. And this story is really rather remarkable, because it actually documents that in the last few weeks, NASA has reached out to a group of something like 24 theologians at various institutions, religious institutions, uh, and academic institutions around the world. And they basically asked them to, to study human reactions to an official announcement that there are, <clears throat> wait for it, aliens. I mean, does this kind of remind anyone of Brookings? It sure does to me. The timing, of course, remember, While this is all going on with our favorite local neighborhood space agency, the Department of Defense, under the latest NDAA, National Defense and Authorization Act, which is the annual appropriation and authorization of funds for the Department of Defense, almost a trillion dollars spent on weapons designed to kill people, in this DOD bureaucracy, this vast overwhelming bureaucracy. They have set up a a new office, a new department, which reports directly to the Secretary of Defense, who in turn reports directly to the President of the United States. And what is that office? Well, it's an office designed to study, research, and report to the Congress, and someday to people, on UFOs. In other words, since we know there are no terrestrial UFOs, come on, on aliens. Now, do you think these two separate developments are truly separate? Because if you do, I have a bridge in Arizona that I can sell you real cheap. 
No, of course they're not. This is part of an integrated plan uh, from all the indications that we have, and we're going to be talking to a very interesting person tomorrow night on the Sunday show named Paul Wallace, who has written a stunning book called The Scars of Eden, which is going to track potentially our interaction with aliens going back millennia with some really interesting documented evidence. Anyway, all of this is coming to a head now because from all these separate disparate trend curves, I and some of my colleagues are projecting that 2022, I love that alliteration, you know, 2022, is going to be the year that we again, the again is in parentheses, that we again make contact. In other words, that's when they're going to tell us that we, in fact, are not alone. And that's why they are reaching out to theologians to try to tell them as a government bureaucracy, i.e. NASA, how people might react. Well, uh, we, they, they could have saved some money because there's no way that a poll is going to tell you what the most monumental modern rediscovery in human history is going to do to people until you go through the monumental rediscovery of what history does to people. Polls will not tell you in the abstract, in the academic, how people will respond. Because they respond at one level when asked a question, and they respond at a very different visceral level when confronted with the actual evidence. And I probably should modify that, because based on our year, well, two years now, and change of experience with COVID-19, I think a large percentage of people on Earth, if and when official governments say we are not alone, that a large percentage of people will completely, totally ignore that announcement, either because they already think they know what being not alone in the universe means, i.e. from their religious perspectives, or B, they will so have distrusted government over the last 10, 20, 30 years, which at so many levels has demonstrably lied to them, that when government says we're not alone, they'll say, yeah, and whose grandmother says that? In other words, they will not believe the official announcements, regardless of how high in government it comes from. And that will present some interesting uh, problems and potential opportunities, which of course brings us to what we're doing here tonight on the other side of midnight. Because, as you know, starting um, in, in, uh, back in December of last year, we literally tried an experiment that had never been tried before. We tried to actually communicate with an extraterrestrial object. The first known interstellar uh, visitor to the solar system, which whipped through the solar system in 2017 and sent us, in response to our communication, something which sounded a lot like this.
we come back, we're going to bring on members of our Oumuamua team, and we're going to talk about what we have received, what we've been able to decode, and where do we go next. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. No, that's not our transmissions and that's not our reception. That is from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a 1977 movie, which eerily depicted that maybe the most likely way to get a response from interstellar uh, occupants, from extraterrestrials, was to send tones, to send frequencies to send harmonics, to send fundamental mathematics and geometry, which basically is the basis of the construction of 3D reality itself. I hope somebody's taking all this down. What are we saying to each other? Seems they're trying to teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. It's the first day of school, fellas. Anyway, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, January 8th, 2022, the day the web has now been successfully almost commissioned. There's a lot of work ahead, but nothing is a showstopper. There's multiple backups, multiple motors. These little uh, motors are going to twist and tweak and re-aim and point the uh, 18 sub-mirrors, but that's... Uh, a very relaxed process compared to the perils of unfolding that uh, tennis court size 
those uh, sun shields. So let me introduce, without further ado, our guest tonight. Um, not in any particular order, because uh, we don't have particular order around here. Um, we have with us David Sarita, who is, of course, one of the prime investigators involved in our uh, Enterprise Mission Oumuamua team. He is a polymath. He's been working with sacred sites, sacred numbers, sacred frequencies, and sacred geometry literally for decades, and is basically, like most of the rest of us here, a generalist. Uh, we have John Womack, who, in addition to being a music producer and someone who is extraordinarily adept with computer programming and uh, uh, animations and graphics and videos, also is an experiencer um, in terms of personal contact with whoever might be out there because he's been enjoying out-of-body experiences and uh, communication with, I love this phrase from Michael Hill, those not from here for many, many decades. And last but not least, we are joined tonight by um, Tom, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking, <laughs> I'm totally blanking on Tom's last name. Um, it'll come to me momentarily. Um, he joined us as a um, uh, music producer, actually Emmy-nominated music producer, and uh, his interest has also been in uh, um, frequencies, sacred geometry. Uh, he lived for a time in Ecuador. He has visited many, many sacred sites. Um, he actually uh, wrote me an email some weeks ago saying, um, I might be able to help uh, send me some data, which we did, and uh, thereby hangs a very interesting tale. So without further ado, um, I'm sorry, Tom, I'm completely blanking on your last name. And I think in part it's because you had two, you had a stage name, and I insisted rather stubbornly that we not use stage names tonight, that we represent to the scientific community our real names. So, um, Mathers, Mathers, yes, I, I knew it would come to me. <laughs> so anyway, gentlemen, oh, and Ron Gerbron is with us, our resident generalist, and you basically all have heard Ron on the show many, many times before. So without further ado, welcome all to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Howdy. That's hey, John. Richard. That I think is Tom. Hey, that was Thomas. Yep. And this is David Sarita. And hi, David. And Ron is there somewhere in the background. Ron, are you with us? Oh, maybe his phone always acts up when we try to do a show. It's very curious. So, in fact, I don't see him in the lineup. So, I guess we may have to call him back. Um, let me let me go to you, David. Why don't you kind of set up the the background? How did we get to where we are tonight? You were working with a. Oh, there you are. Now I'm on. Yeah. Here. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that was a key thing. Okay. Um, David, you were working with a radio ham named Jimmy Blanchett and um, I had you on like six weeks ago something like that and out of this developed the idea of sending through Blanchett's antenna um, at a power of something like half a million watts a dedicated message to Amuamua this object which came through the solar system in 2017 which a lot of the, the people, including the mainstream people like Abby Loeb at Harvard, 
uh, have been championing for many, many years now as potentially an interstellar object of artificial origin. The only difference is that they listened with mainstream mega radio facilities, radio astronomy facilities, but nobody, at least publicly, until we thought of doing it, thought to transmit, certainly not on these particular frequencies. So, um, why don't you start at the beginning and and kind of unfold for people who are new uh, what we said we would do, what we did, and some of the early returns. Well, first of all, when I started working with Jimmy Blanchett, our, our first transmission was August 8th, 2021. We did a moon bounce, and we... We aligned the moon bounce between the antenna and, and the Great Pyramid of Egypt would be at the center of that moon bounce. And then we had a guy videotaping the Great Pyramid to determine if there was any response, if the pyramid's semiconductive and conductive properties would would emit or vibrate with an energy. And sure enough, we ran the video he shot his name is Syed, um, through an algorithm software, and you could see a, a, an enormous energy vibrational response, you know, pictographically, videographically, you can see what appears to be an aura coming off the pyramid. And that, that signal by, you know, when it left the earth, I mean, Jimmy's antenna, de depending on angle, could produce up to a half a million watts, but most of the transmissions are somewhere around 75 um, thousand watts, you know, hundred thousand watts, two hundred and fifty thousand watts in that region. But on on a very low angle transmission, he could reach a half a million watts. So what we have to determine now is because there's another component in the responses we get, and you know, while we're beckoning our our universe, we're knocking on heaven's door. We've literally sent, actually, after my wife died, actually, August 9th, which is the anniversary of Nagasaki, actually. And she, we, we sent her musical recordings to Mercury, Venus, um, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, actually, as a form of knocking on heaven's door with encoded messages. So there are several ways that we transmit. We will send actual tones, just like the tonal dialoguing in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We sent pictograms which are which are generated by facsimile type technology. When when you scan an image on a fax machine, it's basically the same type of technology as that. You're converting an image which including including the type and, and pictures into a sound wave and the sound wave actually contains the picture. And then we also sent um, of course musical recordings and the human voice so when we looked at our responses um, the responses come in on these little basically ham radios that um, we are tuning the radio to the same frequency as the transmission and here's what's really interesting is I want everyone to see this it, uh, just get a piece of paper draw a straight line and imagine that straight line the, the, the length of that line is an antenna. And this is what's really amazing about electromagnetism is the wavelength coming off of a monopole antenna is four times the height of the length of the antenna. So you're basically 
the way electromagnetism works is a square. And it's not the same as squaring, because squaring means you take the number times itself to see how many square units fit in that square. But nevertheless, electromagnetism is, in response to an antenna, its wavelength is four times its height, which is a square. So imagine drawing infinite billions of squares. Hang on, hang on. When, when, when you say a square, you mean four as in four sides to a square. Right, as in four sides. Not squaring, no, but a square. Because the, the, the lengths of the four sides of the squares is equal to the length of the wavelength coming off of it. That's how electromagnetism works. And notice that Einstein's formula is E, energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. Speed of light squared is is different than the four measurements of the side of the square. But the four measurements of the side of the square are proportional to squaring, actually. So in a way, the universe has this cubic infinite fabric, these little cubes. Now, if you look at what's called the crystal lattice scale, of, for example, calcium, which is what your bones are made out of, on a crystal lattice scale, it's cubes with six pyramids inside the cube. So the very structure, in fact, gold is is cubic centered as well, which means it's a cube with six pyramids inside the cube. And, a, and, and a cube is a double tetrahedron. Right, and a cube is a double tetrahedron, but they're, they're, what's amazing about what I'm telling you is this is the structure of not only electromagnetism and Einstein's formula equals mc squared, because squared and squares and cubes are all in this perfect mathematical proportion. That's how light and electromagnetism functions. It functions in the law of squares and cubes, actually, because Einstein's formula also goes to the speed of light cube. Now, just I want you to see this, because not only is your body made of cubes and pyramids, so were our temples. The Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, which at the time of Moses was called the tabernacle, was a cube, 10 by 10 by 10 cubits, and at the time of Solomon, 20 by 20 by 20 cubits. Now, here's what's amazing. The frequencies that we are working with are the royal cubit as that monopole, that first line you drew on your paper. They, the wavelength is, is basically one royal cubit Times four is the wavelength that we're operating at. We're, all the frequencies that we're working with are proportional to qubits. And it seems that the universe may function on these little squares and cubes of qubits. And that this massively powerful antenna we're using may or may not even be necessary is what we're finding out with these little radios. So yeah, hang on there, said, because I figured yeah. out now we're going through a new yeah. system because we're transitioning from Kinthea to another way to work with a website and other people yeah. like Keith. And it took me a while to figure out how to get this transmission. But Jimmy sent me a video of our um, uh, Christmas Eve transmissions. So what David just described... If you were on a Muamua or anywhere in space between us and a Muamua, 
with the right radio and the right antenna, this is what you would have heard. Okay, just as background, this is this is what we actually sent many, many times over the last month. So go ahead, David. So what I'm saying is is I mean, for example, if I was an extraterrestrial and I and we know from the US Navy reports that they're clearly admitting that these things are flying in our skies and they're they're operating at, at functions of and basically that don't make sense for any aircraft or any physical mass object to be moving through or interdimensionally around our planet because they're violating all the laws of physics. So the question is, how do they communicate with each other, right? And if I was an extraterrestrial, the first thing that would interest me would be our music, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> because music it is, is probably, I believe this, and I was talking to Thomas about this last night, is humanity's greatest achievement. Because without music, we probably couldn't feel very many emotions. Because remember, music is, is the artistic expression of very specific frequencies that took millennia to get really nailed down into a beautiful harmonic series of music scales that we, that we now use today. So... What happens when we listen to music, we feel emotions, we feel like dancing, we feel like doing all kinds of fun things. Now, imagine a world where there's no music at all. So I think some of these extraterrestrial civilizations are that flat and dead and dry. They have super, super duper intellects. They figured out how to go faster than light, but they can't dance. <laughs> they can't feel anything. So... They're, they're attracted to our music. I feel first, a movie I, coming on. <laughs> and I feel what's really funny to me is when I look at the response that we got, okay, we got, they sent us numerical values in these chirps on our radios with me holding up my frequency meter. They're blipping all these numbers at us. They sent us the speed of light. They sent us the Stonehenge the coded number 56 which is which maria wheatley told us is the is stonehenge number one with the 56 blue stones they actually sent us the north latitude of the great pyramid which i forgot to tell you because that's one in the same as the speed of light in 10 base they sent us the most perfect royal cubit there is and to my and and a whole bunch of different cubits what initially i thought were different cubits and then i looked at the numbers again and I said, this is a longitude and a latitude in 10 base. Wait, 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 and wait, wait. We just made a huge, huge, huge leap. When did you go from frequencies and fundamental hyperdimensional constants to lat longs? The way I went to lat longs is, is I've spent years looking at this concept that the latitude and longitudinal basically grid mapping of our planet actually exists in physics because if you watch the angular momentum of an electron around the nucleus of an atom it, it goes longitudinal and latitudinal 
it's it's going all over the place. It maps all longitudes and all latitudes. It it does every every single one of them. In in less than one second, it, it's ma it's mapped a whole graphic um, sphere in in less than a second. So that means longitude and latitudes are real. They're not theoretical. And we also know from from remote viewing that longitude and latitudes can give a remote viewer the ability to tune into a target without knowing what it, what is at that location. And the question is, how does that function? So when I look at our rate, my radio spitting out all these numbers, I'm looking at these numbers, and I have – the way my brain works is, is numbers are like a language to me. I've, I've calculated thousands of electromagnetic frequencies based on – on waveguides, which means a temple is actually like the dimensions of a temple are actually like a waveguide. I, I I literally decoded an entire music scale out of the dimensions of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is the most beautiful sounding music scale I've ever heard. And I've been doing this stuff for years. And when a muamua was noted in the media to have gone through our you know our solar system. And like you said, coming down at 33 degrees and coming within within a ratio of 1 to 6.18, the golden ratio number to an, an astronomical unit and the distance, the closest distance it came to Earth, I realized that these this thing was functioning in some sort of a of a musical harmony, actually. And in other then, words, like its said, trajectory was specifically designed to communicate these types of numbers and frequencies and frequencies are music so try to think of frequencies as actual music and then of course after all this data comes in and i'm looking at these all these other numbers because there was more than just the the speed of white stonehenge the location of the great pyramid of egypt and the most perfect royal cubit, which resolves the height of the Great Pyramid to absolute perfection. It measures in the Dead in the Dead Sea Scrolls Temple Scroll the the innermost court of the Holy of Holies to perfection, and it and it resolves um, the remains of of uh, Noah's Ark found on Mount Ararat to absolute perfection, and and all of which contains the golden ratio. So. I started looking at these other numbers, and, I, and I'm saying these are longitude and latitudes in 10 base. So basically, longitude and latitudes are degrees, minutes, and seconds. But actually, you can convert degrees, minutes, and seconds to to degrees and digital degrees. So I could have 20.605 degrees north latitude, and then I could have a longitude. So what what happened next is of course Thomas Mathers showed up and he is a world class musician who did this incredible electronica music career and did a song um with Paul McCartney that got him nominated for an Emmy and when I started talking to Thomas I went Thomas was sent to us he's part of the response because the universe found him and we spent hours talking to Thomas on the phone and and I realized He's part of the answer that was sent back to us, actually. And the, the, the function of music, see, what would beckon an ET response more? If I sent them a bunch of tones, 
or I sent them a pictogram or I sent them music. Now we know that we can, we sent all three of those in our transmissions. In fact, we sent one of Michael E. Hill's songs to Amuamua as well, right? So the question is which of the three triggered them, right? And, and their vast intelligence network, how did, of all the people, because we, we, you know, of all the people that have responded, we, we land, we connected with Thomas. And Thomas did this incredible song with Paul McCartney called 1985. And when you listen to it, you know, when I was listening to it with my really good stereo system here, my, my daughters were, were jumping around like jumping beans having the time of their lives. Now, if I sent my daughters the tones, just the tones, they wouldn't be jumping around having the time of their lives. They'd just be sitting there going, what is this? Do, 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 do. You know what I mean? So consciousness seems to be activated by something emotional, something sensitive, something sensible, meaning it, it activates your senses and it makes you feel something. So that's basically, in a nutshell, where we're at. But, but, but to, to, I can tell you right now, I know that there's that the longitude and the latitude repeated multiple times. So it's not random chance. And it's the specific location on the planet that this particular response came through on my radio. And I know where it is, but I'm not going to tell anybody tonight, that's for sure. Well, we don't want the bad guys to, to zap in and pick up whatever could be there. But it could be anything from an ancient library, a time capsule meant for now, or it could be, uh, you know, let's say an ancient abandoned spacecraft that's buried by natural forces somewhere under the ocean or on land somewhere. See, that's an interesting thing you're saying there, because if I was an ancient civilization and I, I wanted to come visit Earth and I looked pretty much human, I would park my ship somewhere hidden on the earth, somewhere remote, and then I would have it transmit all the time so that I could find it in case I, I forgot where I put it, right? So hmm. maybe <laughs> all these transmissions we're getting on our radios it's, it's are like, coming like, from a... David, it's like that scene in Star Trek Four. remember? When Kirk gets out and he says, remember where we parked? <laughs> exactly. I, I, it's funny, I was on the set of Star Trek and I, I met all those guys in person. Star Trek, um, the one with the with the whales, you know. The, uh, yeah, that was Star Trek the, Four. Yeah, I was on the set of Star Trek Four when my good friend Michael Michael Thomas Mann got me on the set, and I got to meet everybody. I, I met Leonard Nimoy a number of times, and William Shatner a few times. So to, when you know, I, I I think Thomas Mathers also being a very creative mind has has shared with me some incredible insights about where we can go next you know and and you and i richard have been talking about your idea which is a brilliant idea to set up our radios in in multiple okay let's let's let's, let's not give it away you know you've done the perfect segue Uh, david thomas david no this is ron Uh, i just okay ron Uh, go ahead yeah i just had one thought uh you said it had sit your ship somewhere on an isolated spot and uh, have it transmitting continuously. No, it would probably respond to a ping 
forever. You have to ping it. Yeah, but that's like what we're doing. Computer. We're pinging it. See, well, I know exactly, the, exactly. exactly. Right. That's what you. That's we're your, that's pinging a, it. Yeah. it. It doesn't. That's all. Our radios don't do anything unless we ping. Like so, I've got my radio on right now. It's been on all last night and all day, and it hasn't done one thing because I haven't sent out one thing mm. into. And it's set oh. at a new frequency, actually. Okay. And, Over the last yeah. several days, I've had mine set at four one four four point one. It chatters away. I have to move it from the pyramid to the coffee table to by the couch to, you know, kind of activate it because it's very site-specific within inches. But as soon as I try to record it, as soon as I hook up the cable to the computer, it shuts off. It's like whoever's mm. at the other end of the phone does not want to be recorded. The only successful recording I was able to do digitally by a wire was if I, when we actually transmitted, so someone broadcast back to us on that frequency and everybody else shut up and I could record anything anywhere and that period has is, is disappeared because we have not transmitted anything in like a week or two. Right. But remember, we can transmit through our radios. And the question is... Well, that's a whole other under yeah, conversation. Okay. Yeah, when, but when you consider the, the possibility that there, these radios are, again, we going back, we note that Nikola Tesla and Marconi, it was reported in Collier's Weekly way back in the day of the time of Tesla and Marconi, that they were receiving the same type of little staticky blips on the radio systems they developed, and they thought they were extraterrestrials. They ruled out Morse code. So we now know that what Jimmy Blanchett discovered is a rediscovery of what Tesla and Marconi experienced in the very foundational days in the birth of radio. So we, we also know that the God of Moses told him to put a, a copper fiery serpent, which is a coil, on a pole, which is actually what Tesla did when he built the first radios. It was okay, hold it there. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is David Sarita, Jonathan Womack, Thomas Mathers, Ron Gerbron, Keith, of course, Keith Morgan is with us, and we shall return. We're talking about how do you talk to an ET. When David like us, remember, my model is that we're we're talking to us. We're talking to other members of the human family. And who would care more about human history, about ancient human history, than maybe members of the family? And as you heard David in the last half hour describe, the answers we have been getting are directly connected to us, to our own ancient history of ancient sacred sites around the world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. 
Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank mm-hmm. you.